I've had nothing to do with this. He pulled out a cell phone. Where is everybody? He grumbled into it. Maybe there was some other way of getting down here that I wasn't informed about. He snapped the phone shut and shoved it back into his pocket. Watson and White had arrived at the White House from different worlds, and they remained oblivious to each other. They existed on either side of a wall that has traditionally divided science into two camps. The basic research conducted in university labs and non-profit institutions like Watson's Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory on Long Island, and the applied science of pharmaceutical companies, biotechs, and other corporations aimed at developing a marketable product, often using the results of academic research as a jumping-off point. There is, of course, some traffic back and forth, and people on both sides of the wall believe they are serving the public good. But the two camps obey different codes of conduct and reward excellence in different ways. The currency of academic excellence is recognition, publications, honors, and the esteem of colleagues, with the highest accolade being the Nobel Prize. The currency of success in commercial science is currency, lots of it in some cases. Watson and White epitomized these separate worlds. The only reason the two men were in line together on that June morning was that another scientist, who was at that moment inside with the President, had tried to excel on both sides of the wall simultaneously, which violated everybody's rules. His name was J. Craig Venter. Whether or not he had succeeded was an open question, but he had certainly succeeded in pissing a lot of people off, Watson and White among them. A science policy administrator, Kathy Hudson, arrived carrying a fresh copy of Time magazine. She passed it around, and people leaped through it, laughing and admiring the pictures in the lead story. On the cover of the magazine, two scientists stood shoulder to shoulder, one a little behind the other. Both men were dressed in white lab coats. Journalistic protocol demands that lab coats be worn by scientists during photo shoots, otherwise we might not be able to tell them from other people. The scientist on the right was Francis Collins, chief of the government's Human Genome Project, who was also inside with the President. The photo showed a man in his late forties with a large square face, thick brown hair, a neat mustache, and a dog had set to his mouth. The scientist on the left was J. Craig Venter. He was bald, with upturned eyebrows and an oval face tapering down to a mouth that flickered up at the corners, as if he were trying to suppress a grin. His face was dramatically bifurcated by the photographer's lighting, the right side aglare and the left in shadow. Two years earlier, in May 1998, Vendor had announced that with backing from P.E. Corporation, then known as Perkin Elmer, he was going to form a private company to unravel the human genetic code and would complete the project in three years instead of the seven more years estimated to be needed by the publicly financed Human Genome Project. By making the human code available to the world so soon, he hoped to greatly accelerate the pace of biomedical research and thereby save the lives of thousands of people who would otherwise die of cancer and other diseases. He also hoped to become famous, well-loved, and very rich. It was a big gamble on all counts. Nothing like the particular scheme he was proposing had been attempted before. If it were broken down into its various technical components, most of them had never been attempted before either. All of these untested elements would have to work seamlessly together, or the whole enterprise would fail. If it did work, it would be a scientific achievement of huge importance. But even then, few people really understood how it would make Venter's proposed company any money. Those who knew Venter were not surprised that he was going to try anyway. Craig likes to do high dives into empty pools, one colleague said of him.
He tries to time it so the water is there by the time he hits the bottom. A couple of weeks after Venter's spectacular announcement in 1998, I asked him to let me observe the progress of his undertaking as it unfolded. If the proposed enterprise did manage to succeed in beating the government's human genome project to the finish line, I told him, it might make a compelling book. I didn't mention that there was at least as good a story to be told if it crashed and burned. At the time of his announcement, Venter was president of a non-profit research group in Rockville, Maryland, called the Institute for Genomic Research, TIGR, or TIGER, which he had founded in 1992 and which was dedicated to pure science. The company he was organizing to carry out the new project would not be. Simply by announcing his intentions, in fact, he had thrown down a gauntlet to perhaps the greatest concerted undertaking in the history of academic science, an endeavor that was universally regarded to be true and good. Some people said he had made a deal with the devil. Others thought of him as the devil himself. Venter responded to my proposal in a way that I would learn was typical. He invited me to go sailing. He owned a yacht named Sorcerer and asked if I'd like to join him and some friends for a weekend race off the coast of Nantucket. He told me to meet him at the Montgomery County Air Park in Gaithersburg, where a chartered plane would fly us up to the island. I was waiting for him when a beefy blue SUV drove up, bearing the license plate Tiger II. Venter tumbled out and beamed at me, a brow-lifting, eye-brightening grin that did look just a trifle satanic. There wasn't any malevolence in the expression, but the irrepressible delight in his smile and the way it sharply lifted his eyebrows and the lines about his eyes gave his face a netherworldly impishness, as if our meeting there on the tarmac, the plane noisily revving up, were a prelude to some disobedient romp of mischief. He was bald as the devil, too. Bald men often seem acutely embarrassed above the brow. In contrast, Venter's freckled pate seemed a completion rather than an absence, as if his scalp had purposely emptied its follicles to reduce friction with the elements through which he moved, like the shaved head of a swimmer. Hey, he said with a rising inflection, more the way a surfer might greet a buddy on the beach than the way a distinguished scientist greets a rider. Hop in. On the flight up, I can tell you how we're going to change the paradigm of medicine. Venter did not look like a typical scientist either. He was wearing a light green linen shirt, blue jeans that looked fresh out of the laundrette's cellophane, and brilliant white tennis shoes that flashed like beacons with each step. He is five foot eleven, but he seemed taller, perhaps because of that uplifted eagerness in his face. Scientists do not all wear tweed jackets, cardigans, or thick glasses, of course, but most of the ones I have met share a downward orientation somewhere in their body language. A stoop, a slouch, or something less tangible, an indefinable holding back. It comes from spending a lot of time crawling around in mental caves. Modern life science and genomics, Venter's field, was so modern that most people, including other scientists, had never heard of it. It is driven forward by reductionism, a strategy of discovery based on the belief that the more you can divide natural phenomena into their constituent parts, and those parts into subparts and so forth, the more you can learn about how nature really works. Looking at a person will not tell you as much about what makes him tick as if you examine his heart and brain and other organs or, better yet, the specific cell types in those organs, or, farther down in the cave, the interaction of proteins in those cells or the intimate varying structure of the proteins themselves. 
A good scientist never forgets that the purpose of studying ever more reduced parts of an organism is to understand the organism as a whole. But to push knowledge forward, you move downward into the biological hierarchy as if deeper and deeper into a system of tunnels, looking for tiny gems, nuggets of new information buried in the rock. The farther down into a problem the scientist has gone, the harder it is to back out and explain to the people on the surface what he or she has been doing. When scientists are out of the cave and away from work, the urge to get back in again pulls on some vulnerable part of their physical aspect, their posture, for instance, or their gaze, or the set of their mouth. Craig Venter had spent time mining the mental cave, too, chipping away under the beam of a tiny flashlight on a minuscule portion of the vast pitch-black tunnel system where the genetic secrets of the human brain are hidden. But he was impatient with the pace of life in the cave, and a decade earlier he had found a faster way to find genes. His new method had paid off handsomely in its contributions both to basic scientific research and to his wallet. It also made him a lot of enemies. His announcement in May 1998 had made new enemies and galvanized the old ones into unified opposition. It was the exceptional hubris of the plan that riled them. Venter wasn't just trying to capture more than his share of gems from the cave. He was going after the cave itself. We're going to be on the forefront of everything, he told me on the plane. We're going to need to build the fastest computer in the world, with data production orders of magnitude bigger than anything else. We're thinking on a different scale. Just doing the human genome and stopping there is way short of what can be accomplished. He took out his wallet and pulled out a plastic card. The words U.S. Department of Genetic Identity were written across the top of the card in an imposing font. Embossed below the photo of a young man was one of those holographic information-bearing chips you sometimes see on credit cards. The chip, Venter explained.